Chapter One of the Book of Wonder by Lord Dunsany. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sandra Cullen. The Book of Wonder by Lord Dunsany. Chapter One Preface. Come with me, ladies and gentlemen, who are in any wise weary of London. Come with me, and those that tire it all of the world we know, for we have new worlds here. The Bride of the Man Horse In the morning of his two hundred and fiftieth year, Shepherd the centaur went to the golden coffer, wherein the treasure of the centaurs was and taking from it the hoarded amulet that his father, Jishak, in the years of his prime, had hammered from mountain gold, and set with opals bartered from the gnomes, he put it upon his wrist and said no word, but walked from his mother's cavern. And he took with him too that clarion of the centaurs, that famous silver horn, that in its time had summoned to surrender, seventeen cities of man, and for twenty years had brayed at star-girt walls in the siege of Tholdenblana, the citadel of the gods. What time the centaurs waged their fabulous war and were not broken by any force of arms, but retreated slowly in a cloud of dust before the final miracle of the gods that they brought in their desperate need from their ultimate armory. He took it and strode away, and his mother only sighed and let him go. She knew that today he would not drink at the stream coming down from the terraces of Varpa Niger, the inner land of the mountains, that today he would not wander a while at the sunset, and afterwards trot back to the cavern again to sleep on rushes pulled by rivers that know not man. She knew that it was with him as it had been of old with his father, and with Goom the father of Jishak, and long ago with the gods. Therefore she only sighed and let him go. But he, coming out from the cavern that was his home, went for the first time over the little stream, and going round the corner of the crags saw glittering beneath him the mundane plain, and the wind of the autumn that was gilding the world, rushing up the slopes of the mountain, beat cold on his naked flanks. He raised his head and snorted. I am a man-horse now, he shouted aloud, and leaping from crag to crag he galloped by valley and chasm, by torrent bed and scar of avalanche, until he came to the wandering leagues of the plain, and left behind him forever the Arthraminorian mountains. His goal was Shretazula, the city of Sombaline. What legend of Sombaline's inhuman beauty, or of the wonder of her mystery, had ever floated over the mundane plain to the fabulous cradle of the centaur's race? The Arthraminorian mountains, I do not know. Yet in the blood of man there is a tide, an old sea current rather, that is somehow akin to the twilight, which brings him rumours of beauty, 
from however far away. As driftwood is found at sea from islands not yet discovered, and this spring tide of current that visits the blood of man comes from the fabulous quarter of his lineage, from the legendary, the old. It takes him out to the woodlands, out to the hills. He listens to ancient song. So it may be that Shepherd's fabulous blood stirred in those lonely mountains, away at the edge of the world, to rumours that only the airy twilight knew, and only confided secretly to the bat. For Shepherd was more legendary even than man. Certain it was that he headed from the first for the city of Zretazula, where Sombeline in her temple dwelt. Though all the mundane plain, its rivers and mountains, lay between Shepherd's home and the city he sought. When first the feet of the centaur touched the grass of that soft alluvial earth, he blew for joy upon the silver horn, he pranced and caracoled, he gambled over the leagues, pace came to him like a maiden with a lamp, a new and beautiful wonder. The wind laughed as it passed him. He put his head down low to the scent of the flowers. He lifted it up to be nearer the unseen stars. He reveled through kingdoms, took rivers in his stride. How shall I tell you, ye that dwell in cities, how shall I tell you what he felt as he galloped? He felt for strength like the towers of Belnarana, for lightness like those gossamer palaces that the fairy spider builds, twixt heaven and sea along the coasts of Zith, for swiftness like some bird racing up from the morning to sing in some city spires before daylight comes. He was the sworn companion of the wind. For joy he was as a song, the lightnings of his legendary sires, the earlier gods, began to mix with his blood, his hooves thundered. He came to the cities of men, and all men trembled, for they remembered the ancient mythical wars, and now they dreaded new battles, and feared for the race of man. Not by Cleo are these wars recorded, History does not know them. But what of that? Not all of us have sat at historians' feet, but all have learned fable and myth at their mother's knees. And there were none that did not fear strange wars when they saw Shepherd swerve and leap along the public ways. So he passed from city to city. By night he lay down unpanting in the reeds of some marsh or a forest, before dawn he rose triumphant, and hugely drank of some river in the dark, and splashing out of it would trot to some high place to find the sunrise, and to send echoing eastwards the exultant greetings of his jubilant horn. And lo, the sunrise coming up from the echoes, and the plains new lit by the day, and the leagues spinning by like water flung from a top, and that gay companion the loudly laughing wind, and men and the fears of men and their little cities. And, after that, great rivers and waste spaces and huge new hills, and then new lands beyond them, and more cities of men, and always the old companion, 
the glorious wind. Kingdom by kingdom slipped by, and still his breath was even. It is a golden thing to gallop on good turf in one's youth, said the young man horse, the centaur. Ha ha, said the wind of the hills, and the winds of the plain answered. Bells pealed in frantic towers, wise men consulted parchments, astrologers sought of the portent from the stars, the aged made subtle prophecies. Is he not swift, said the young. How glad he is, said children. Night after night brought him sleep, and day after day lit his gallop, till he came to the lands of the Athelonian men, who live by the edges of the mundane plain, and from them he came to the lands of legend again, such as those in which he was cradled on the other side of the world, and which fringe the marge of the world and mix with the twilight. And there a mighty thought came into his untired heart, for he knew that he needs Retazula now, the city of Somberline. It was late in the day when he neared it, and clouds coloured with evening rolled low on the plain before him. He galloped on into their golden mist, and when it hid from his eyes the sight of things, the dreams in his heart awoke, and romantically he pondered all those rumours that used to come to him from Somberline, because of the fellowship of fabulous things. She dwelt said evening secretly to the bat in a little temple by a lone lake shore a grove of cypresses screamed her from the city from zretazula of the climbing ways and opposite her temple stood her tomb her sad lake sepulchre with open door lest her amazing beauty and the centuries of her youth should ever give rise to the heresy among men that lovely Somberline was immortal, for only her beauty and her lineage were divine. Her father had been half centaur and half god. Her mother was the child of a desert lion, and that sphinx that watches the pyramids. She was more mystical than woman. Her beauty was as a dream, was as a song, the one dream of a lifetime dreamed on enchanted dunes the one song sung to some city by a deathless bird blown far from his native coasts by storm in paradise. Dawn after dawn on mountains of romance or twilight after twilight could never equal her beauty. All the glow-worms had not the secret among them nor all the stars of night. Poets had never sung it nor evening guessed its meaning. The morning envied it. It was hidden from lovers. She was unwed, unwooed. The lions came not to woo her because they feared her strength, and the gods dared not love her because they knew she must die. This was what evening had whispered to the bat. This was the dream in the heart of Chaparral as he cantered blind through the mist. And suddenly, there at his hooves in the dark of the plain, appeared the cleft in the legendary lands, and Zretazula sheltering in the cleft, and sunning herself in the evening, 
Swiftly and craftily he bounded down by the upper end of the cleft, and entering Zretazula by the outer gate, which looks out sheer on the stars, he galloped suddenly down the narrow streets. Many that rushed out onto balconies as he went clattering by, many that put their heads from glittering windows, are told of in olden song. Sheperauk did not tarry to give greetings, or to answer challenges from martial towers. He was down through the earthward gate, like the thunderbolt of his sires, and like Leviathan, who has leapt at an eagle, he surged into the water between temple and tomb. He galloped with half-shut eyes up the temple steps, and, only seeing dimly through his lashes, seized Somberline by the hair, undazzled as yet by her beauty, and so hailed her away, and leaping with her over the flawless chasm where the waters of the lake fall, unremembered, away into a hole in the world, took her we know not where, to be her slave for all centuries that are allowed to his race. Three blasts he gave as he went upon that silver horn, that is the world-old treasure of the centaurs. These were his wedding bells. End of chapter one. Chapter two of the Book of Wonder by Lord Dunsany. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Distressing tale of Thangobrind the jeweller. When Thangobrind the jeweller heard the ominous cough, he turned at once upon that narrow way. A thief was he, of very high repute, being patronised by the lofty and elect, for he stole nothing smaller than the moo-moo's egg, and in all his life stole only four kinds of stone, the ruby, the diamond, the emerald, and the sapphire. And as jewellers go, his honesty was great. Now there was a merchant prince who had come to Thangobrind and had offered his daughter's soul for the diamond that is larger than the human head and was to be found on the lap of the spider idol, Hloglo, in his temple of Mung Galin. For he had heard that Thangobrind was a thief to be trusted. Thangobrind oiled his body and slipped out of his shop, and went secretly through byways and got as far as Snarp, before anybody knew that he was out on business again, or missed his sword from its place under the counter. Thence he moved only by night, hiding by day and rubbing the edges of his sword, which he called Mouse, because it was swift and nimble. The jeweller had subtle methods of travelling. Nobody saw him cross the plains of Zid. Nobody saw him come to Mursk or Tlun. Oh, but he loved shadows. Once the moon peeping out unexpectedly from a tempest had betrayed an ordinary jeweller. Not so did it undo Thangobrind. The watchman only saw a crouching shape that snarled and laughed. "'Tis but a hyena,' they said. Once in the city of Ag, 
One of the guardians seized him, but Thangobrind was oiled and slipped from his hand. You scarcely heard his bare feet patter away. He knew that the merchant prince awaited his return, his little eyes open all night and glittering with greed. He knew how his daughter lay chained up and screaming night and day. Ah, Thangobrin knew, and had he not been out on business, he had almost allowed himself one or two little laughs. But business was business, and the diamond that he sought still lay on the lap of Flo-Flo, where it had been for the last two million years, since Hello-Hello created the world, and gave unto it all things except that precious stone called Dead Man's Diamond. The jewel was often stolen, but it had a knack of coming back again to the lap of Hello-Hello. Thango Brind knew this, but he was no common jeweller, and hoped to outwit Hello-Hello, perceiving not the trend of ambition and lust, and that they are vanity. How nimbly he threaded his way through the pits of snood, now like a botanist, scrutinising the ground, now like a dancer, leaping from crumbling edges. It was quite dark when he went by the towers of Tor, where archers shoot ivory arrows at strangers, lest any foreigner should alter their laws, which are bad, but not to be altered by mere aliens. At night they shoot by the sound of the stranger's feet. Oh, Thangobrind, Thangobrind, was ever a jeweller like you. He dragged two stones behind him by long cords, and at these the archers shot. Tempting indeed was the snare that they set in Woth, the emeralds loose set in the city's gate. But Thangobrin discerned the golden cord that climbed the wall from each, and the weights that would topple upon him if he touched one, and so he left them, though he left them weeping, and at last came to Theth. There all men worship Hello-Hello, though they are willing to believe in other gods, as missionaries attest, but only as creatures of the chase for the hunting of Hello-Hello, who wears their halos, so these people say, on golden hooks along his hunting belt. And from Theth he came to the city of Moong, and the temple of Moong Garling, and entered and saw the spider idol, Hello-Hello, sitting there with dead man's diamond glittering on his lap, and looking for all the world like a full moon. But a full moon seen by a lunatic, who had slept too long in its rays, for there was in dead man's diamond a certain sinister look, an aboding of things to happen that are better not mentioned here. The face of the spider idol was lit by that fatal gem, there was no other light, in spite of his shocking limbs and that demoniac body. His face was serene and apparently unconscious. A little fear came into the mind of Thango Brind, the jeweller. A passing tremor no more. Business was business and he hoped for the best. Thango Brind offered honey to Hello Hello and prostrated himself before him. Oh, he was cunning. 
when the priests stole out of the darkness to lap up the honey they were stretched senseless on the temple floor for there was a drug in the honey that was offered to Holohalo. And Thangobrin the jeweller picked Dead Man's diamond up and put it on his shoulder and trudged away from the shrine. And Holohalo the spider idol said nothing at all, but he laughed softly as the jeweller shut the door. When the priests awoke out of the grip of the drug that was offered with the honey to Holohalo, they rushed to a little secret room with an outlet on the stars and cast a horoscope of the thief. Something that they saw in the horoscope seemed to satisfy the priests. It was not like Thangobrin to go back by the road by which he had come. No, he went by another road, even though it led to the narrow way, night house and spider forest. The city of Moong went towering by behind him, balcony above balcony, eclipsing half the stars as he trudged away with his diamond. Though when a soft pittering as of velvet feet arose behind him, he refused to acknowledge that it might be what he feared. Yet the instincts of his trade told him that it was not well when any noise whatever follows a diamond by night and this was one of the largest that had ever come to him in the way of business. When he came to the narrow way that leads to Spider Forest, Dead Man's Diamond feeling cold and heavy, and the velvety footfall seeming fearfully close, the jeweller stopped and almost hesitated. He looked behind him. There was nothing there. He listened attentively, there was no sound now. Then he thought of the screams of the merchant prince's daughter, whose soul was the diamond's price, and smiled and went stoutly on. There watched him, apathetically over the narrow way, that grim and dubious woman whose house is the night. Thango Brind, hearing no longer the sound of suspicious feet, felt easier now. He was all but come to the end of the narrow way when the woman listlessly uttered that ominous cough. The cough was too full of meaning to be disregarded. Thangobrin turned round and saw at once what he feared. The spider idol had not stayed at home. The jeweller put his diamond gently upon the ground and drew his sword called Mouse and then began that famous fight upon the narrow way in which the grim old woman whose house was night seemed to take so little interest to the spider idol you saw at once it was all a horrible joke to the jeweller it was grim earnest he fought and panted and was pushed back slowly along the narrow way but he wounded hello hello all the while with terrible long gashes all over his deep, soft body, till Mouse was slimy with blood. But at last the persistent laughter of Hello Hello was too much for the jeweller's nerves, and once more wounding his demoniac foe, he sank aghast and exhausted by the door of the house called Night, at the feet of the grim old woman who having uttered once that ominous cough 
interfered no further with the course of events. And there carried Thangobrin the jeweller away, those whose duty it was, to the house where the two men hang, and taking down from his hook the left-hand one of the two, they put that venturous jeweller in his place, so that there fell on him the doom that he feared, as all men know, though it is so long since, and there abated somewhat the ire of the envious gods. And the only daughter of the merchant prince felt so little gratitude for this great deliverance that she took to respectability of a militant kind and became aggressively dull and called her home the English Riviera and had platitudes worked in worsted upon her tea cosy and in the end never died but passed away at her residence. End of chapter 2 Chapter 3 of The Book of Wonder by Lord Dunsany. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The House of the Sphinx. When I came to the House of the Sphinx, it was already dark. They made me eagerly welcome, and I, in spite of the deed, was glad of any shelter from that ominous wood. I saw at once that there had been a deed although a cloak did all that a cloak may do to conceal it. The mere uneasiness of the welcome made me suspect that cloak. The Sphinx was moody and silent. I had not come to pry into the secrets of eternity, nor to investigate the Sphinx's private life, and so had little to say, and few questions to ask. But to whatever I did say, she remained morosely indifferent. It was clear that either she suspected me of being in search of the secrets of one of her gods, or of being boldly inquisitive about her traffic with time, or else she was darkly absorbed with brooding upon the deed. I saw soon enough that there was another than me to welcome. I saw it from the hurried way that they glanced from the door to the deed, and back to the door again and it was clear that the welcome was to be a bolted door. But such bolts, and such a door! Rust and decay and fungus had been there far too long, and it was not a barrier any longer that would keep out even a determined wolf, and it seemed to be something worse than a wolf that they feared. A little later on I gathered from what they said that some imperious and ghastly thing was looking for the Sphinx, and that something that had happened had made its arrival certain. It appeared that they had slapped the Sphinx to vex her out of her apathy, in order that she should pray to one of her gods, whom she had littered in the house of time. But her moody silence was invincible, and her apathy oriental, ever since the deed had happened. And when they found that they could not make her pray, there was nothing for them to do but to pay little useless attentions to the rusty lock of the door, and to look at the deed and wonder, and even pretend to hope, and to say that after all it might not bring that destined thing from the forest, which no one named. It may be said I had chosen a gruesome house, 
but not if I had described the forest from which I came, and I was in need of any spot wherein I could rest my mind from the thought of it. I wondered very much what thing would come from the forest on account of the deed, and having seen that forest as you, gentle reader, have not, I had the advantage of knowing that anything might come. It was useless to ask the Sphinx. She seldom reveals things. Like her paramour time, the gods take after her. And while this mood was on her, rebuff was certain. So I quietly began to oil the lock of the door, and as soon as they saw this simple act, I won their confidence. It was not that my work was of any use, it should have been done long before, but they saw that my interest was given for the moment to the thing that they thought vital. They clustered round me then. They asked me what I thought of the door, and whether I had seen better, and whether I had seen worse. And I told them about all the doors I knew, and said that the doors of the baptistry in Florence were better doors, and the doors made by a certain firm of builders in London were worse. And then I asked them what it was that was coming after the Sphinx because of the deed. And at first they would not say, and I stopped oiling the door. And then they said that it was the arch-inquisitor of the forest, who is investigator and avenger of all Silverstrian things. And from all that they said about him, it seemed to me that this person was quite white, and was of a madness that was settled down quite blankly upon a place, a kind of mist in which reason could not live. And it was the fear of this that made them fumble nervously at the lock of that rotten door. But with the Sphinx it was not so much fear as sheer prophecy. The hope that they tried to hope was well enough in its way, but I did not share it. It was clear that the thing that they feared was the corollary of the deed. One saw that more by the resignation upon the face of the Sphinx than by their sorry anxiety for the door. The wind soughed and the great tapers flared, and their obvious fear and the silence of the Sphinx grew more than ever a part of the atmosphere, and bats went restlessly through the gloom of the wind that beat the tapers low. Then a few things screamed far off, then a little nearer, and something was coming towards us, laughing hideously. I hastily gave a prod to the door that they guarded. My finger sank right into the mouldering wood. There was not a chance of holding it. I had not leisure to observe their fright. I thought of the back door, for the forest was better than this. Only the Sphinx was absolutely calm. Her prophecy was made, and she seemed to have seen her doom, so that no new thing could perturb her. But by mouldering rungs of ladders as old as man, by slippery edges of the dreaded abyss, with an ominous dizziness about my heart and a feeling of horror in the soles of my feet, I clambered from tower to tower till I found the door that I sought and it opened onto one of the upper branches of a huge and sombre pine, down which I climbed onto the floor of the forest, and I was glad to be back again in the forest from which I had fled, and the sphinx in her menaced house, 
I know not how she fared, whether she gazes for ever, disconsolate at the deed, remembering only in her smitten mind, at which the little boys now leer, that she once knew well those things at which man stands aghast, or whether in the end she crept away, and clambering horribly from abyss to abyss, came at last to higher things, and is wise and eternal still. For who knows of madness, whether it is divine, or whether it be of the pit? End of chapter 3 Chapter 4 of the Book of Wonder by Lord Dunsany This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Probable Adventure of the Three Literary Men When the nomads came to El Lola, they had no more songs, and the question of stealing the golden box arose in all its magnitude. On the other hand, many had sought the golden box, the receptacle, as the Ethiopians know, of poems of fabulous value, and their doom is still the common talk of Arabia. On the other hand, it was lonely to sit around the campfire by night with no new songs. It was the tribe of Heth that discussed these things one evening upon the plains below the peak of Mluna. Their native land was the track across the world of immemorial wanderers, and there was trouble among the elders of the nomads because there were no new songs. While untouched by human trouble, untouched as yet by the night that was hiding the plains away, the peak of Mluna, calm in the afterglow, looked on the dubious land. And it was there on the plain upon the known side of Mluna, just as the evening star came mouse-like into view, and the flames of the campfire lifted their lonely plumes, uncheered by any song, that that rash scheme was hastily planned by the nomads, which the world has named the quest of the golden box. No measure of wiser precaution could the elders of the nomads have taken than to choose for their thief that very slith, that identical thief that, even as I write, in how many schoolrooms governesses teach, stole a march on the king of Westalia. Yet the weight of the box was such that others had to accompany him, and Sippy and Slorg were no more agile thieves than may be found today among vendors of the antique. So over the shoulder of Mluna these three climbed next day, and slept as well as they might among its snows, rather than risk a night in the woods of the dubious land. And the morning came up radiant, and the birds were full of song. But the forest underneath and the waste beyond it, and the bare and ominous crags, all wore the appearance of an unuttered threat. Though Slith had an experience of twenty years of theft, yet he said little. Only if one of the others made a stone roll with his foot, or, later on in the forest, if one of them stepped on a twig, he whispered sharply to them always the same words. That is not business. He knew that he could not make them better thieves during a two days journey, and whatever doubts he had, he interfered no further. From the shoulder of Maluna, 
they dropped into the clouds, and from the clouds to the forest, to whose native beasts, as well the three thieves knew, all flesh was meat, whether it was flesh of fish or man. There the thieves drew idolatrously from their pockets, each one a separate god, and prayed for protection in the unfortunate wood, and hoped therefrom from a threefold chance of escape since if anything should eat one of them it was certain to eat them all, and they confided that the corollary might be true, and all should escape if one did. Whether one of these gods was propitious and awake, or whether all of the three, or whether it was chance that brought them through the forest unmouthed by detestable beasts, none knoweth, but certainly neither the emissaries of the god that most they feared nor the wrath of the topical god of that ominous place brought their doom to the three adventurers there or then. And so it was that they came to Rumbly Heath, in the heart of the dubious land, whose stormy hillocks were the ground swell and the afterwash of the earthquake, something so huge that it seemed unfair to man that it should move so softly, stalked splendidly by them and only so barely did they escape its notice that one word rang and echoed through their three imaginations. If, 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 and when this danger was at last gone by, they moved cautiously on again, and presently saw the little harmless mipped, half fairy and half gnome, giving shrill, contented squeaks on the edge of the world. And they edged away unseen, for they said that the inquisitiveness of the mipped had become fabulous, and that harmless as he was, he had a bad way with secrets, yet they probably loathed the way that he nuzzles dead white bones and would not admit their loathing, for it does not become adventurers to care who eats their bones. Be this as it may, they edged away from the mipped, and came almost at once to the wizened tree, the goalpost of their adventure, and knew that beside them was the crack in the world and the bridge from bad to worse, and that underneath them stood the rocky house of owner of the box. This was their simple plan, to slip into the corridor in the upper cliff, to run softly down it, of course with naked feet, under the warning to travellers that is graven upon stone, which interpreters take to be, it is better not, not to touch the berries that are there for a purpose, on the right side going down, and so to come to the guardian on his pedestal, who had slept for a thousand years and should be sleeping still, and go in through the open window. One man was to wait outside by the crack in the world until the others came out with the golden box, and, should they cry for help, he was to threaten at once to unfasten the iron clamp that kept the crack together. When the box was secured, they were to travel all night and all the following day, until the cloud banks that wrapped the slopes of Maluna were well between them and the owner of the box. The door in the cliff was open. They passed without a murmur down the cold steps, 
Slith leading them all the way. A glance of longing, no more, each gave to the beautiful berries. The garden upon his pedestal was still asleep. Slorg climbed by a ladder that Slith knew where to find, to the iron clamp across the crack in the world, and waited beside it with a chisel in his hand, listening closely for anything untoward, while his friend slipped into the house, and no sound came. And presently Slith and Sippy found the golden box. Everything seemed happening as they had planned. It only remained to see if it was the right one, and to escape with it from that dreadful place. Under the shelter of the pedestal, so near to the guardian that they could feel his warmth, which paradoxically had the effect of chilling the blood of the boldest of them. They smashed the emerald hasp and opened the golden box, and there they read by the light of ingenious sparks which Slith knew how to contrive, and even this poor light they hid with their bodies. What was their joy even at that perilous moment as they lurked between the guardian and the abyss? to find that the box contained fifteen peerless odes in the alcaic form, five sonnets that were by far the most beautiful in the world, nine ballads in the manner of Provence that had no equal in the treasuries of man, a poem addressed to a moth in twenty-eight perfect stanzas, a piece of blank verse of over a hundred lines, on a level not yet known to have been attained by man, as well as fifteen lyrics on which no merchant would dare to set a price. They would have read them again, for they gave happy tears to a man, and memories of dear things done in infancy, and brought sweet voices from far sepulchres. But Slith pointed imperiously to the way by which they had come, and extinguished the light, and Slorg and Sippy sighed, then took the box. The guardian still slept the sleep that survived a thousand years. As they came away, they saw that indulgent chair close by the edge of the world, in which owner of the box had lately sat reading selfishly and alone the most beautiful songs and verses that poet ever dreamed. They came in silence to the foot of the stairs, and then it befell that as they drew near safely, in the night's most secret hour, some hand in an upper chamber lit a shocking light, lit it, and made no sound. For a moment it might have been an ordinary light, Fatal as even that could very well be at such a moment as this. But when it began to follow them like an eye and to grow redder and redder as it watched them, then even optimism despaired. And Sippy very unwisely attempted flight, and Slorg even as unwisely tried to hide. But Slith, knowing well why that light was lit in that secret upper chamber, and who it was that lit it, leaped over the edge of the world, and is falling from us still through the unreverberate blackness of the abyss. End of chapter 4
Chapter 5 of the Book of Wonder by Lord Dunsany. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Injudicious Prayers of Pombo the Idolater. Pombo the Idolater had prayed to Amuz a simple prayer, a necessary prayer, such as even an idol of ivory could very easily grant, and Amuz had not immediately granted it. Pombo had therefore prayed to Thama for the overthrow of Amuz, an idol friendly to Thama, and in doing this offended against the etiquette of the gods. Thama refused to grant the little prayer. Pombo prayed frantically to all the gods of idolatry, for though it was a simple matter, yet it was very necessary to a man. And gods that were older than Amuz rejected the prayers of Pombo, and even gods that were younger and therefore of greater repute. He prayed to them one by one, and they all refused to hear him. Nor at first did he think at all of that subtle divine etiquette against which he had offended. It occurred to him all at once as he prayed to his fiftieth idol, a little green jade god whom the Chinese know, that all the idols were in league against him. When Pombo discovered this, he resented his birth bitterly, and made lamentation, and alleged that he was lost. He might have been seen then in any part of London, haunting curiosity shops, and places where they sold idols of ivory or of stone, for he dwelt in London with others of his race, though he was born in Burma, among those who hold Ganges holy. On drizzly evenings of November's worst, his haggard face could be seen in the glow of some shop, pressed close against the glass, where he would supplicate some calm cross-leg idol, till policemen moved him on. And after closing hours, back he would go to his dingy room, in that part of our capital where English is seldom spoken, to supplicate little idols of his own. And when Pombo's simple, necessary prayer was equally refused by the idols of museums, auction rooms, shops. Then he took counsel with himself and purchased incense and burned it in a brazier before his own cheap little idols and played the while upon an instrument such as that wherewith men charm snakes and still the idols clung to their etiquette. Whether Pombo knew about this etiquette and considered it frivolous in the face of his need, or whether his need, now grown desperate, unhinged his mind, I know not. But Pombo the idolater took a stick, and suddenly turned iconoclast. Pombo the iconoclast immediately left his house, leaving his idols to be swept away with the dust, and so to mingle with man, and went to an arch-idolater of repute, who carved idols out of rare stones, and put his case before him. The arch-idolater who made idols of his own rebuked Pombo in the name of man for having broken his idols. For hath not man made them, the arch-idolater said, and concerning the idols themselves, he spoke long and learnedly explaining divine etiquette, and how Pombo had offended, and how no idol in the world would listen to Pombo's prayer. When Pombo heard this, he wept, 
and made bitter outcry and cursed the gods of ivory and the gods of jade and the hand of man that made them but most of all he cursed their etiquette that had undone as he said an innocent man so that at last that arch-idolater who made idols of his own stopped in his work upon an idol of jasper for a king that was weary of wash and took compassion on pombo and told him that though no idol in the world would listen to his prayer yet only a little way over the edge of it a certain disreputable idol sat who knew nothing of etiquette and granted prayers that no respectable god would ever consent to hear when pombo heard this he took two handfuls of the arch idolater's beard and kissed them joyfully and dried his tears and became his old impertinent self again and he that carved from jasper the usurper of wash explained how in the village of world's end at the furthest end of last street there is a hole that you take to be a well close by the garden wall but that if you lower yourself by your hands over the edge of the hole and feel about with your feet till they find a ledge that is the top step of a flight of stairs that takes you down over the edge of the world for all that men know those stairs may have a purpose and even a bottom step said the arch idolater but discussion about the lower flights is idle then the teeth of pombo chattered for he feared the darkness but he that made idols of his own explained that those stairs were always lit by the faint blue gloaming in which the world spins then he said you will go by lonely house and under the bridge that leads from the house to nowhere and whose purpose is not guessed thence past maharian the god of flowers and his high priest who is neither bird nor cat and so you will come to the little idol doth the disreputable god that will grant your prayer and he went on carving again at his idol of jasper for the king who was weary of wash and pombo thanked him and went singing away for in his vernacular mind he thought that he had the gods it is a long journey from london to world's end and pombo had no money left yet within five weeks he was strolling along last street but how he contrived to get there i will not say for it was not entirely honest and pombo found the well at the end of the garden beyond the end house of last street and many thoughts ran through his mind as he hung by his hands from the edge but chiefest of all those thoughts was one that said the gods were laughing at him through the mouth of the arch-idolater their prophet and the thought beat in his head till it ached like his wrists and then he found the step and pombo walked downstairs there sure enough was the gloaming in which the world spins and stars shone far off in it faintly there was nothing before him as he went downstairs but that strange blue waste of gloaming with its multitude of stars and comets plunging through it on outward journeys and comets returning home and then he saw the lights of the bridge to nowhere 
and all of a sudden he was in the glare of the shimmering parlour window of Lonely House. And he heard voices there pronouncing words, and the voices were no wise human. And but for his bitter need he had screamed and fled. Halfway between the voices and Maharian, whom he now saw standing out from the world, covered in rainbow halos, he perceived the weird grey beast that is neither cat nor bird. As Pombo hesitated, chilly with fear, he heard those voices grow louder in Lonely House, and at that he stealthily moved a few steps lower, and then rushed past the beast. The beast intently watched Maharian, hurling up bubbles that are every one a season of spring in unknown constellations, calling the swallows home to unimagined fields, watched him without ever turning to look at Pombo, and saw him drop into the Lana, the river that rises at the edge of the world, the golden pollen that sweetens the tide of the river and is carried away from the world to be a joy to the stars. And there before Pombo was the little disreputable god who cares nothing for etiquette and will answer prayers that are refused by all the respectable idols. And whether the view of him at last excited Pombo's eagerness or whether his need was greater than he could bear that it drove him so swiftly downstairs or whether, as is most likely, he ran too fast past the beast, I do not know. And it does not matter to Pombo, but at any rate he could not stop, as he had designed, in attitude of prayer at the feet of death, but ran on past him down the narrowing steps, clutching at smooth bare rocks, till he fell from the world as, when our hearts miss a beat, we fall in dreams and wake up with a dreadful jolt. But there was no waking up for Pombo, who still fell on towards the incurious stars, and his fate is even one with the fate of Slith. End of chapter 5